Who is there for heroes of the families left behind when a service member or first responder dies or is catastrophically injured in the line of duty? Who helps our country's homeless veterans? And who helps our nation to never forget 9-11? Let me tell you who, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. The Foundation's gold star, fallen first responder, smart home, and homeless veteran programs comprise their in-the-line-of-duty programs. They're all dedicated to honoring our nation's heroes and their families. The Foundation's never-forget programs engage people in 9-11 remembrance across America. Over 80 runs, walks, and climbs a year. Dozens of golf outings. And the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute is educating kids kindergarten through 12th grade to help our nation keep its vow to never forget. More than 95 cents of every dollar you donate to Tunnel to Towers goes to its programs. Never forget the sacrifices of our country's greatest heroes. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. On this edition, we have Chris Williamson with us. He is the host of the very excellent Modern Wisdom podcast, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, etc. Chris, first time on the program, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mr. Sexton. How are we? You know, pretty good, man. Pretty good. Um, I wanted to give you uh, just the the floor for a minute here to tell everybody. Generally, we have people. So a lot of this is going to be people from the Clay and Buck audience who subscribe to our podcast and they they hear this. Um, and they usually know our folks from radio world or conservative media world more broadly. But you're a, you're just like a real deal podcaster guy. You're a, a jack of many trades. You're a guy who crosses all boundaries and and uh, backgrounds in terms of the kind of people who listen. So just tell everybody, who is Chris Williams? Where did where'd this guy come from with the cool accent? So born in the northeast of the UK, spent 15 years running one of the biggest events companies in the UK. A thousand club nights stood on the front door of cold northeast evenings. I met about a million people, did a bunch of reality TV, got a blue tick on Twitter and free charcoal toothpaste and all of the big wins uh, and then kind of got toward the end of my 20s and thought, is this really all that I've got to offer the world? Started a podcast, really enjoyed it. Podcast kicked off, did very, very well. And a year and a bit ago, I made the choice to become an immigrant to your great nation. Survived my first July 4th, very difficult day for me. And I've done two Thanksgivings now. And I think that pretty much means that I'm here to stay. That's fantastic. I was going to say the first step is getting you to become an American, which is obviously the best decision anybody can make from the UK to anywhere else. But then it would be to get you to a wonderful red state in America, but I believe you already inhabit one in Texas. Am I right on that one? Yes, Uh, You know, the Florida-Texas, you know how there's like Yankees-Red Sox and there's these rivalries? The Florida-Texas red state rivalry, which is a, a, a friendly but increasingly fierce one because, you know, Texas was the heart of conservatism in America for, well, certainly for the last uh, few decades. And uh, it was actually California a little bit before that, which people forget, but that's a whole other conversation. If you go way, way back to the, you know, the 80s. Um, but now you have Florida uh, up in its game in a big way. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, let, let's start with this. You do a podcast which allows you to find out the most interesting things from people who are trying to find out the most important things in their discipline, their area. 
what's just when someone says to you like what do you get from modern wisdom like what what am i going to learn about i mean i actually think it's interesting i know this is like becoming a podcast about your podcast but what are some of the things that you've learned from talking to these people these uh whatever thought leaders gurus intellectuals i all you have all kinds of folks what do you learn so I've had about 600 episodes now, 100 plus New York Times bestsellers, people like John Peterson, Andrew Huberman, David Goggins, Jocko Willink, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you learn an awful lot. My curiosity is pretty big. One of the common themes between everybody recently, I think, has been a concern about fragility for the new gen- generation that's coming through. I think everyone is um, unimpressed by the work ethic and the resilience of um, people that are coming through. I, I don't know. I, I wonder why that's the case. I don't disagree with them. Uh, that's been something that I've been very interested in recently. Uh, declining birth rates has been something else I've been very interested in recently. But the show for me is mostly about finding out about myself and the world around me, understanding human nature, why I am the way I am. And uh, Look, really, let's that's, talk about the, the Gen Z see. thing for a second, right? Because I, you know, when when I do on, on the podcasting side and then uh, uh, TV. I feel like I generally end up speaking to people who are on the younger end. And then, you know, Twitter and social media is probably the youngest end of what conservative media people uh, are, how they're interacting with audience. And then, you know, terrestrial radio, old school radio, you tend to have an, an older audience. And, and I hear from them, right? I hear from the uh, the boomer, uh, boomer squad. I love them. I got a lot of boomers who listen. I hear from them that the generations below them are, you know, not not showing up, not doing the hard work, all that kind of stuff. What I think is interesting, though, is that I'm a millennial, believe it or not, and uh, I'm, a, I'm as old a millennial as you can possibly be, and I look at Gen Z and my interactions with them, and I actually think we're not separated. Like, I would expect boomers to be surprised by a lot of things about Gen Z. I think Gen Z is crazy, <laughs> so I'm wondering, and I think they're in for a, a really hard world and a lot of trouble ahead of them. Am I just telling them to get off my lawn a few decades before expected, or is there data? Is there something to back up that Gen Z is uh, in for a rough ride? I do always wonder whether every generation considers the one coming after them to just be a complete nightmare, and whether we are now slowly turning into the boomers that we've mm-hmm. uh, been criticized by for a long time. But there was a recent study that came out from the, it's called the GSS study. There's a ten percentage points gap between the share of conservatives versus liberals who report being very happy, and this is in pretty much every iteration of the study since 1972. Conservatives do not just report high levels of happiness, they also report higher levels of meaning in their lives. There's a positive association between conservative ideology and happiness that is very rarely reversed, and liberals are only happier than conservatives in five out of 92 countries and never in the United States. So there is something going on, I think, with the trendiness, perhaps, amongst young people for a very, almost aggressively empathetic, overly performative um, viewpoint uh, with regards to... I I believe believe that leftism is a pathway to misery in any society and any point in history. Uh, And I know people say, what does leftism even mean? And we can get into all the definitional debates over what that... But effectively... Um, in the we can speak about it, I think, with some specificity in the American context, the rejection of of uh, all traditionalism, uh, the rejection of traditional gender roles, traditional uh, sense of patriotism and, and connection to country and community, traditional 
uh, a religion. I'm not sure I even said that yet, but obviously that would be. Uh, there's all of this rejection, and it seems like ultimately there is the replacement of it with, I mean, you said you know, the performative politics of it, but the replacement of it with the worship of the self. I mean, a, a solipsism, right? The center of the universe idea for people. Um, and I think that there are people that are able to very, they're able to, one, monetize it, which means there's a market for it, but also politically um, by making people the center of their own world, I think it actually makes them easier to control. And I just, I'm just throwing some ideas out to you. I mean, how do you make sense of why people are so miserable the more left-wing they are so consistently? This is the case in all these different polls, data, everything we can see. I think that if everything is a perceived injustice, you have a, a combination in the digital age, right? You are constantly exposed to new outrages, just Everybody is. All of us are because of the amount of extra information that we have that's coming in. But cultural elites who constantly create new outrages out of nothing has skyrocketed the number of things that we can be concerned by. And if you are praised, if the uh, particular background that you come from upholds um, performative empathy, if it says that standing up for the little guy, that being very, very attuned with injustices... That means in a world prickling with provocations, your sensibilities just roam free and you allow yourself to be goaded by every visible indignation. You're endlessly distracted from your goals. You're easily controlled by emotional manipulation from trolls, disinformation agents, anybody that you want. I think that it is a perfect cocktail of performative empathy, which leads to real vulnerability and the line between what I was doing to look good and what I genuinely feel is very quickly blurred, which can cause people to be quite uh, quite easy to manipulate. And on the problems that Gen Z young women particularly face, I mean, that's, you know, there are not that many times when I'll read um, statistics or polling or anything that, that's rooted in data and have to read it a, a few times just to make sure that I'm I'm not missing something or there's some... Uh, some variable that I'm not taking into account that makes the numbers seem a little bit more uh, digestible, right? I mean, there's at some level you read something, it's hard to process if it really defies your preconceived notions of what's possible. The um, number of, uh, the percentage, I should say, of uh, young women who have thought about uh, suicide and also engaged in and or engaged in self-harm already Seems like it's a pandemic of its own, not one that's talked about very much. What does the data tell you about it, and, and why is that happening? 60% of U.S. girls reported persistent sadness and hopelessness. That's the current state of, I think it's under 16s, in the U.S. at the moment. That's, you know, if you had a disease, let's say, that was able to come in, and afflict people with some kind of mental malady and that the effect would be one in two, more than one in two of them would suffer with persistent sadness and hopelessness. This would be seen as one of the biggest pandemics that we've ever seen. You know, forget a one to 2% mortality rate. This is making life essentially close to not worth living. Persistent sadness and hopelessness. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things going on. I think social media has an awful lot to answer for. You are comparing yourself with the greatest lives that you can see online whilst you see yourself bumble from working class home to lift to school to whatever it is that's going on. You're not as thin or as attractive 
or as rich as you feel like you should be. And the gap between the life that you could lead and the life that you are leading has never been more present out in front. I think that there's some concerns to do with hormonal birth control. The more that I learn about the psychological impact of that on especially young girls' minds, it is really, really concerning. There's an amazing book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control by Dr. Sarah Hill. Um, that needs to be factored in too. Uh, and all of Jonathan Haidt's work as well with the coddling of the American mind, snowplow parenting and whatnot. Tell, tell me more about this because I, I feel like when I was uh, you know, high school and college age, uh, there was this birth control was was prescribed so broadly for women that and it was always under this context of, oh, it's just it's just like a thing that you should do in the background. It's not even about being sexually active. It'll regulate your period. It'll clear up your skin. Birth control became and I mean, I, I really remember this um, something that. You know, it was almost like, hey, we're just like going to start adding it into the water for young women. So they just it really became super widespread. And it's only been in recent years that I've started to hear and come across uh, women who would say, I, I won't touch the stuff. I don't want to go near it. And they have all these concerns about it. What do we know about the concerns or, or you know, the, the risks, the challenges of it as established? And then what about things that maybe are still need more study but there are some real experts out there like the, the doctor that you mentioned uh, who have concerns that this is actually a much bigger issue in other ways. If anybody wants to check out a full hour and a half conversation with me and Dr. Hill, they can just search Dr. Sarah Hill, Chris Williamson on YouTube and it'll come up or it'll be on Spotify and Apple podcasts mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, but there are a whole host, a whole suite of things that occur beyond simply suppressing your ovulation. Uh, there is increases in depression and anxiety particularly what's concerning is that there is a, a potential if you take birth control during the formative years, i.e. your teenage years, when your brain is still forming, it can lock in a particular type of folding within the brain, which makes these tendencies towards depression and anxiety irreversible, that you are creating a lifelong susceptibility to these kinds of concerns. There is some pretty strong evidence that suggests that women on birth control optimize for different types of partners. They seem to optimize for partners that are providers rather than protectors. So they will optimize for objective metrics of success, stuff like their earning capacity, their education. Now, in a world where two women for every one man is completing a four-year U.S. college degree by 2030, this is going to worsen an already imbalanced education market because the guy that might be a blue-collar worker but really handsome and rugged and a fantastic sort of masculine man is going to be overlooked by a woman that's on birth control. Now, the problem and the kicker is that when that woman comes off birth control, all of these women statistically on average have a much, high, a much lower level of sexual satisfaction with their partner. So women can select a partner whilst on birth control, which when they come off birth control, they find themselves no longer attracted to. And this is something that's important for both men and women to no, if you have been in a relationship for two or three or four years and you think, right, now's the time to get engaged and get married, but she's never come off birth control while she's still with you, that is something that I think everybody should do because both the woman and the man could find that maybe they're not quite so compatible when this hormone-induced stupor gets lifted. I assume you've probably talked to Professor Galloway on your show. I mean, you've done 600 episodes. I have indeed. Yeah, yeah, I figured you would have. I've seen some of his stuff, and I have to say, having lived... I'm uh, recently married, um, but having lived my life as a 
single man in New York City for a couple of decades. Uh, I was certainly exposed to my fair share of dating rituals and uh, the dating marketplace. And, you know, the, I, I see this as tying in really with social media. I'm, I'm amazed. I, I come across it. You, you know, the, the old, what was it? The uh, old Greek myth in Greek mythology, narcissist, right? Looking at himself in the, it was in the, in the pond, right? Or the, you know, the body of water, a little reflecting pool. Uh, and it became in love with himself. Nothing better than nothing better than what he could see back in his own reflection. So this idea has been around for a long time, right? Obviously gives us the term narcissism. Um, I am amazed at how many women I come across who, and, and, and have known and seen and been around, who seem to think that the purpose of being beautiful, you know, being attractive to men is for attention and likes on Instagram and they, they give very little thought. And of course, you know, going out on dates and having men fly them around the world and things like that too. But very little time spent thinking about who should I marry and who is going to be the father of my children. And they start thinking about that at like 35. And it's a shock to them when they find out that's not a smart timeline. Am I, am I uh, mansplaining here or is there any root for this in there, any, any basis for this in, in objective data and expertise? I think whatever you do is mansplaining, but That's with true. regards to the, with regards to the data, I'm not too sure. In my personal experience, I've met an awful lot of girls in nightlife, and an awful lot of them have been very good looking. Thankfully, not many of them have had that particular mentality. That may be a New York thing, a cosmopolitan city with more wealth, more ceilings that you could break up through. I'm not too sure. Working class from the northeast of the UK, that hasn't been something that I've encountered personally. One of the things that I can tell you, though, is that eight out of ten women who are childless, didn't intend to be childless. They didn't intend to not There's have something's, children. Something's going on. This is a massive meta-analysis by someone called Professor Rinska Kaiser, and this looked at um, what women who have broken through their fertility window and not had kids had to say about their choices in life and, and why they occurred. Around about one in 10 women is physiologically incapable of having children, very unfortunately, due to a variety of, of factors. Around about one in 10 said that they always intended to not have children, and this is planned, which leaves a whopping four out of five non-mother women who no longer can have children who didn't intend to not be mothers. It's called involuntary childlessness. And the most common reason for this is that they didn't, uh, life circumstances, as it's called, and the most common life circumstances, not re meeting the right partner sufficiently early before they break through the fertility window, which could be facilitated by perhaps not um, thinking about things sufficiently seriously. I do think it's important to not necessarily lay this at the feet of women when you have finally had the opportunity to go to university. And then after you come out of university, you know, your, your mother and your grandmother basically didn't. You, for the first time, has had the opportunity. You go to university, you come out, you're 24 or 25. You spend five years in a, uh, in a job, and now you're 30. And now you, you've barely had adult life in the working world, but, oh my God, I have to really, really rush along. So I do think that uh, women's uh, fertility has become squeezed by their increasing opportunities in education and employment. This doesn't mean at all that we should draw it back. It does mean that we probably should say to girls, look, like, you know, the, the clock is ticking and IVF is not a w miracle wonder drug. It's not going to fix everything. It is, there are limitations to what you can do biologically. And, you know, these women, the eight out of 10, they grieve for families that they've never had. There are support groups around the world for these women. And, you know, for the people that say, but is, this it, is, a, is it, I'm sorry, is it, is it possible that women are being 
and this is, of course, in the aggregate, and there's all kinds of things we could say, provisos and exceptions and everything else, women are being lied to about how they should approach their life path. I mean, I say lied to, I mean, by society now, by, by and large. I mean, you're, you're again, laying out the numbers, there's something that's going very wrong here. Um, and, and I would also, you know, I think that the problem is whenever you start to say, here's a problem that faces women, especially if you're a guy, I mean, maybe not for you because you seem very like in touch with people and, and sensitive and empathetic, you know, maybe a little more of the mansplaining over here, but nonetheless, you know, you're a guy. So there's always this, Oh, it's not about a battle of the sexes thing. I mean, I could also sit here and talk about how men with options have just become just like disgustingly, uh, you know, just it's all about swipe, swipe, swipe. Uh, you know, you know, it's 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 all so casual, and they got tons of time, and they don't really care. And you know, that comes with consequences. It comes with certainly emotional and and time consequences for the women involved. Uh, over the long term, I would argue too, for a lot of guys, they realize, you know, they don't even realize what was that even all about. You know, that's not good either. No, yeah. I think that a wealth of opportunities for guys that are very high status with a ton of different women that they could sleep with every night. It's like a child that could eat ice cream. It might be what it wants, but it's not necessarily good for it. And yeah, I, you know, I, if there is somebody that feels icky about two guys talking about women's issues, well, would you rather us not care? I'm not trying to drag women out of the boardroom and put them back into the kitchen or the bedroom. What I'm saying is that eight out of 10 women who don't have children didn't intend to not have children after their fertility window breaks. How is that anything shy of just straight up empathy? You say that you want men to talk about women's problems, to care about the issues that women have. There are very few issues that are going to affect women more emotionally than this. Well, I want to come back in a second here and ask you, what are the the solutions may be too strong a word, but what are the ways to address this in a, in a positive way that are being are being raised? Um, but we'll get to that in a second, because I want to set everybody up who's watching this spring to have their full energy. You want to be like Chris. You want to be a guy who's full of energy, vitality, you know, is getting out there. I don't even this guy probably deadlifts 400 pounds. Look at him. But with the news being what it is, you know, you, you got to stay focused on what matters here. Chalk can help. This company provides all natural supplements that help people restore their energy potential every day. It's a daily supplement formulated to restore lower testosterone levels in men to their previous levels. Our diets and stress levels just don't naturally provide for us for testosterone levels as they used to. Chalk's leading ingredient is their male vitality stack. It's proven to restore 20% of the lower levels in just three months' time. You'll feel the positive effects and experience an energy potential that you haven't in a long time. Chalk produces their products with the highest level of purity it's, it's potent, and it makes a difference. That's why the male vitality stack is effective as it is. Sign up. Check out Chalk's male vitality stack. Use promo code BUCK when you go to Chalk.com. That's C-H-O-Q, Chalk.com. Promo code BUCK. You'll get 35% off. And uh, Chalk.com, go check it out. So I actually, that's interesting. I do want to, let's, let's ask about addressing the female issue of the childlessness, but also masculinity, sir, since we're just talking about testosterone and the decline thereof, which is also, I know, a scientific fact in reality. We'll get to that in a second. But all right. So the people see uh, my concern is that when you, when we sit here, we talk about uh, women are child without child. And usually that means without in many cases, I should say, I mean, without a family of their own as well. Right. Those things tend to go together. Not always. Some women get married and don't have kids, but a lot of women end up not getting married and not having children. Um, I have my ideas for how this could be solved for a little bit, um, but I want to know what do what do the experts? I mean, you sit down with experts in fields like this. What do they think can be done about this? 
One of the problems is that it's a multivariate problem, which means that there is no single silver bullet to fix it. Some of the suggestions that I think that would be fruitful would be encouraging in-person dating again. So since the advent of Me Too, which was a much needed pushback against men that were using their positions of power to manipulate women into sex, which is not something that anybody, man or woman, should want. However, it can uh, overcorrect and take it to the situation where women are terrified to be approached by men and men are terrified to do the approaching, which means that you've seen these gym TikTok videos of guys that'll go over and ask if the girl needs help unloading her glute bridge deadlift workout or whatever. Uh, and they're now on TikTok to a few million people being called a creep. That sets a very worrying precedent because 86% of women say that they want a man to make the first move, but 80% of men say that they will not approach a woman for fear of being seen as creepy. Yeah, it's why one thing to tell people, you know, my dad, I will tell you, uh, <laughs> he was always, he was always, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta ask, you know, you gotta ask for, for the number you've got to get. And if you get rejected, it's fine. You just take it like a man. You say, well, it's nice to, you know, you and this was sort of part of, of manhood training for, I think, a lot of people, not just me, you know, for whatever that's worth. But now, I mean, I think that, I mean, you mentioned those videos. There's one video where some woman, a guy looks in her, this one went super viral, you saw this, I'm sure, too, looked in her general direction, and she, like, starts in with him, like, what are you looking at? And he's like, I work here, like, what are you even talking about? And I work in a gym, I mean, work, <laughs> yeah, right, I occasionally go to, <laughs> when I have time, the elliptical machines in a gym near me, but it is in Miami, there are women who have said, oh, first of all, they're basically wearing lingerie, and second of all, which is fine, but I mean, you know, you are wearing very, very, very little to work out, I mean, there are levels here, but they're setting up cameras in the lingerie, in the public gym, to videotape themselves working out, I'm sure you've seen this too. The tripod squad, yep. as we... Oh, wow. There's a term for it. I didn't even know there was a term. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a term for everything. There's a meme for everything, Buck. Um, yeah, I, I'm very, I think that that trend is uh, very quickly being reversed. I think that women understand that <clears throat> everybody pushed back against those videos, right? Everyone has pushed back against them because it was seen as ridiculous. But yeah, man, 86% of women say they want a man to make the first move, and 80% of men say they're terrified of approaching a woman for being seen as creepy. In a world where one in three men hasn't had sex in the last year, aged 18 to 30, that tripled from 8 to 28% from 2008 to 2018. In a world with that, we need to be doing things to foster more of these kind of relationships. And I know that you were going to talk about masculinity. One very, probably the most shocking stat that I've learned over the last year is that 50% of men said that they are not looking for casual or long-term relationships aged 18 to 30. It was 61% in 2019. It's down to 50% now. Both you and me have been through the ages of 18 to 30 and understand the reality-bending torment of the male sex drive during those ages. If you can imagine that one in two men is saying they are not looking for either casual relationships or long-term relationships, that's very worrying. How much of a, of a role, you know, there's these, there's these groups um, that have, I'm going to say groups, you know, these ideas, memes, you know, whatever, you know, you'll hear this. But uh, I think actually in the UK, wasn't there, a, wasn't there a period where there was a whole like no wanking was a thing? These groups no that fap. say no fap. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Close. I was close. No fap. Exactly. This is a real thing for people to think that I'm being crazy. Um, and but I've, I've seen others who are, are making this and, and it always ties in really to I mean, that's a little more specific. But uh, the proliferation of, of pornography 
Um, I mean, I, every, everyone always talks about this. You know, technology, obviously, technology comes with great things. There's downsides. We're all figuring this out. Hopefully, Chris and I aren't both going to end up being, you know, replaced by AI machines in the next few years. Um, but uh, it seems to me that the proliferation of pornography online um, is something that humanity wasn't really prepared for and is just starting to figure out how bad it is for the site. I mean, I, I tell people this, like I made a, gosh, going on like 15 years ago, I was just like, no porn, done. I don't want to see it. I don't want to look at it. I don't, you know, and I found it was uh, both freeing and helpful as a guy to just be like, I just don't do that. There are a few supernormal stimuli in the modern world. So French fries would be one of them. The saltiness, the crunchiness, the fluffiness is a food that we would have not been evolved to have been able to deal with. And you were able to see now within 20 minutes on a single iPhone, more women than you would be exposed to in your entire life mm -hmm. ancestrally. So it is absolutely something that's a supernormal stimuli. One um, slight white pill that should push back against too much uh, concern is that the story you tell yourself around your porn use seems to be very, very instrumental in how it affects you. That porn is not quite neutral. Porn use is not quite neutral, but if you have a relatively healthy relationship with it, and if you do have a partner, if you're not hiding your use from your partner, and if you don't feel ashamed after you use it, that is a, a pretty good market. Those people seem to be able to kind of continue to move through life. Now, one Almost of the problems- like you're using it on an instruction basis. <laughs> perhaps. You know, it's a little perhaps, more of a yes. DIY feel to it. Yeah. It seems that way. Yes. But as you said, you- Almost anybody that realizes that they don't like what porn does in the world is probably not going to feel particularly good if they use it themselves. Now, the problem comes if you have someone like that who doesn't do what you did and recount use of porn and say, I'm not going to bother using this anymore. If you have someone who doesn't like it but continues to use it, that is a recipe for bad relationships, for reduced sex drive. It seems to have a downstream, a, a pretty big host of stuff. Couple that with social media and video games, and you have neutered a lot of men's goal-seeking and reproductive chasing behavior. Um, I want to ask about uh, how society is also suppressing what I would argue are masculine virtues and, and what you've come across from uh, your conversations, both your own research and conversations with experts about that. We'll get to that in just a second. But it makes all kinds of sense to have life insurance, particularly when there are people relying on you to be there for them. You want to have life insurance just in case, right? I got married earlier this year, so life insurance is something that I have now, and you've got to have it too. The right insurance plan gives you peace of mind because if something should happen to you, your family has that safety net to cover mortgage payments, college costs, and other expenses you've been providing for. Even if you have some life insurance provided by the job you have, it may not be enough. So now's a good time to future-proof your family's finances. Get some life insurance. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy it. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at $25 per month for uh, per uh, million dollars for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net and you deserve a smarter way to find it. Go online to policygenius.com. Click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quote. See how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Uh, so I'm speaking to Chris Williamson here. Life genius. This guy knows all kinds of things about how to lead 
a life rooted in modern wisdom. Also, the name of his of his podcast, and uh, that's where I can also now take the conversation to. It feels like uh, what would have been described as a. Well, how old are you? I can't. I don't even know how old you are. Thirty five. Thirty five. All right. So we're. I mean, I'm forty one. So I'm a little bit. You know. Just wait to get to be my age. Your shoulders start to hurt for no reason. Your knees already you there. Like five. Already there, Buck. You probably do a lot of yoga and stuff, though. So you're anyway. But you got like five or six years. Um, but what, what what we grew up with as the masculine virtues, um, it seems increasingly there really there really is a broad societal effort to make that stuff. I mean, toxic masculinity is the obvious phrase that's used. But to suppress it, and starting also at a very young age, you know, for young men, you know, they're uh, I mean, you know, boys even, their rambunctiousness, their, uh, the, the things that we would associate with boys will be boys and they get older and this is what a man should be. It feels like society's trying to turn all that on its head. How much of that is real and how bad is it if it is real? I think that there are some real concerns to do with how society sees boys and masculinity at the moment. You spoke about toxic masculinity. I actually found recently for a debate that I did out in Qatar, a bunch of different uh, headlines uh, that were accused of being toxic masculinity that had come through in the mainstream media recently. Uh, Brexit, toxic masculinity, the election of Donald Trump, not wearing a mask, eating meat, physical fitness, toxic masculinity, hip hop, smelling of Axe body spray was toxic masculinity. I may uh, being agree with interested that actually, in- <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, have you ever smell um, that stuff? I don't, I'm not a fan. Anyway, keep going. Pretty oppressive. Playing board games, being interested in cars and saying hello or have a nice day. So there are... Um, what used to be simply unpleasant or perhaps slightly distasteful behavior by men has now become pathologized. And if you want to guarantee men not engaging in a conversation, you want to pathologize them. You want to basically make it out that there is something inside of them that needs to be exhumed or exercised, right? Like original sin. You are broken. You are ultimately, it is your fault. And when we come to parts of masculinity that we probably should keep a hold of, the 2012 shooting in Aurora, Colorado, the Dark Knight uh, movie premiere. So the shooter's a 24-year-old male. And in the midst of the onslaught, there's three men, 24, 26, and 27, who threw themselves on top of their girlfriends as these bullets are shot into the crowd. All three men died. All three women survived. That is precisely the kind of masculinity that will be gotten rid of if you want to throw baby, bathwater, and bath out altogether. Yes, and it seems that, uh, unfortunately, this is also playing out. I mean, I just had, I had a lot of people uh, with military and special operations backgrounds on both radio for many, many years now, and then even on, on the podcast. Um, we had a, a, a Kiowa female, Kiowa combat pilot, multiple tours overseas, you know, flying one of those helicopters that's got rocket, rocket pods on it and machine guns and was doing all the stuff that one does in a combat zone. And she said that the military is now uh, being toyed with and uh, and there's a social engineering that's going on that's meant to undermine the basic ethos of people that have to be willing to put their lives on line, not necessarily in the same context as what you just mentioned, but uh, for their country um, as well as, you know, for their their comrades in arms. So I do think something's going on there. Um, all, but but switching uh, gears for a second. You know, one of the things, I mean, I, I, I came across your work. I've seen it on, on the TikTok and, and some other places. And there are moments, I think there are, distilli- there are distilled moments uh, of insight from, from the work that you're doing that are particularly 
uh, point. Yeah, that's very memorable for people. What's something, though, that you've come away from one of your conversations that you say to yourself is a difficult truth that people need to hear that you just, you know, you want to spread the word about it, but, you know, people don't. What is a difficult truth that people think, I want to find a way around that. I want to argue with Chris on that. You're like, no, this is the way it is. Mm, So two would come to mind. One is that regrets are inevitable in life, that they're not a bug of life. They're a feature. You are going to have regrets in life. And when it comes to choosing between different things, a much smarter question to ask yourself would be, which regret can I live with as opposed to which thing do I want to do? Because what you realize is over time, you're going to accumulate regrets. And those are the things that are going to hurt a lot. So if you do end up being faced with a difficult challenge, one that is risky, but is going to be fulfilling and will close a loop and will mean that for the rest of your life, you don't ever have to wonder about whether or not you could have, would have, should have done that thing. That's something that's very good. The other thing, and this is a good question that I love to ask friends at dinner parties, is what is currently being ignored by the media, but in future will be studied by historians? And it's my belief that the birth rate decline at the moment is something which nobody is paying attention to. Climate change is the current existential crisis that is given an awful lot of focus. And in 30 or 40 years, you are going to have huge, huge cities all around the world with no one in them. Let's come back and dive into that in one second. Let's talk about the declining birth rate uh, globally. Because my friends, I got a good buddy who used to hate shaving. And uh, as you can see, I actually just started recently. I got rid of the beard after, God, I don't know, five or six years. Um, But I'm one of those guys now who wants to make sure that I'm getting the best shave I possibly can. And I don't want irritation, ingrown facial hair, all that kind of stuff. So that's why you got to check out One Blade Shave. It's all you need for a clean, comfortable shave, leaving your face feeling great. One Blade. Big razor companies have been lying to you for decades saying, more blades better. That's because the blades are crap. They're low quality. You want one blade that is super high quality because it is better for your face, better for your skin. One blade, state-of-the-art, award-winning razor design makes single-edge shaving completely natural and effortless. These razors have a patented pivoted head that hugs the skin and ensures the blade is always at the correct angle. And one blade's handle is metal. It's not plastic. It's not some cheap crap that comes from overseas. This stuff is weighty and substantial and worthy of your face. To elevate your shaving experience... Get 20% off your One Blade order when you go right now to onebladeshave.com slash buck. That's one spelled out, O-N-E, onebladeshave.com slash buck. You'll get 20% off your first order. These are the best raises you'll get absolutely anywhere. They're phenomenal. I've had them for years, and I'm now starting to use them again now that I'm actually clean shaven, which uh, I had to get approval from the wife, Chris. Actually, funny story. We had a woman named Phyllis who wrote into the radio show, and she went on this like little tirade about how I was much handsomer before I had a beard. And, uh, and I just, everyone started laughing at me on the crew of the radio show and everything else. I was like, you know what? If the wife says it, I'm, we're going to give Phyllis what she wants. So now I'm a clean shaven man. And some, your wife uh, has veto power over your facial hair. Yeah. She has veto power. Cause come on. I mean, who else is really, you know what I mean? If I had my, who else wife. is it for? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that's all really matters. All right. So we were talking about, um, declining birth rates. And I, I remember, I'm sure you've read it. There was the uh, Mark Stein book, uh, America Alone, I think it was, maybe came out 15 years ago. And just crunching the numbers, and it was basically the West is done over a long enough time frame, just based on the declining birth rate, except America. 
But now America's actually heading the wrong trajectory, too. Tell me what's going on here with declining birth rates. We can start globally, then we could bring it home to the U.S. of A. So 70% of people around the world live in a country which is below the birth rate tipping point, which is 2.1 children per woman. Uh, I don't know whether this is a uh, something to be happy about or not, but the worst places in the world are currently in the East. So Korea, South Korea's birth rate is 0.8, 0.8, which is absolutely insane. Japan are just over 1, 1.2. Uh, so let's say Japan's got about 120 million people in it or so. By 2050, that's going to be 60 million. China, 1.2 billion. By 2050, 650 million. So it is a precipitous decline, very, very aggressive. When you get across to the US, I think it's in the high ones, 1.7-ish, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8. Um, not great. Uh, now, you can fix this problem to a degree with immigration, but not massively because even South American countries are having declining birth rates. So overall, you can move bits of the pie around on the world as much as you want. But the pie is still continuing to get smaller, and uh, it is very, very concerning. Why aren't people having more babies in developed countries? And you know, obviously, we know in the third world it's very different. In the third world, they're declining as well by uh, one child per mother every fifteen years. So let's say you go to Ghana, you go to Chad, somewhere like that. Eight, then it's seven, then it's six, then it's five. Each fifteen years, it's going down. It seems like as soon as you industrialize. Uh, country and you educate the women and give them the opportunity to do other things, those other life paths begin to compete with family life. And it's not the interesting stat. The most interesting stat around this is the average number of children per mother hasn't changed. It's the number of motherless women or childless women that has increased. So if you have your first, it's likely that you will go on to have a second and a third and so on and so forth. The large difference is in the number of women who never start to have the first and what um does... go, go ahead go ahead just that that's that, that is the uh, highest point of leverage and it seems that the most common reason as we said before eight out of ten women broke through that fertility window didn't intend to not have children most common reason is life circumstance didn't find a partner within time because that fertility window has been squeezed by a combination of uh, education employment now you could say raising living costs all that stuff you know might be getting in the way people feel like they need a two-income household absolutely uh, potential, but not good. What do the numbers tell us about female life satisfaction when it comes to pursuing family as the first priority versus uh, a career? The current longest study of happiness is the Harvard study of adult development. It's been going for decades and decades and decades, and they've studied the same people, and then they've studied the children of these people. The strongest predictor of your health outcomes in life, of your happiness, of your resilience, are your number of family, friend, and romantic partners. That's it. It's relationships all the way down. Friends, family, and romantic partner. That's what is the best predictor for... Everything, every health outcome that you care to care about. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. 
We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So that actually pivots us nicely into what I wanted to ask you about as well, because I know that one of the things you've done um, on Modern Wisdom Podcast, which everyone should check out, is uh, you've sat down with a lot of people who are super high achievers and also people who study super high achievers. I mean, I listened to your episode uh, with, with David Senra. Is that right? Is am I getting his name right? Yes, from yeah. Founders Podcast. Yeah, Founders Podcast. Uh, I've listened to an, and, and I listened to you talk to him, and then I listened to a number of uh, Senra's episodes. I love the uh, Enzo Ferrari and. Yeah. But one thing, and I, I know you've touched on this and I just wanted your, your take and I know you've discussed this in, in other forums, but because I, I think about this all the time and I think about this in the people that I see around me. I mean, growing up in New York City, uh, I certainly saw and was around people who were um, at that level of success where they are famous, rich and powerful beyond the wildest dreams of, you know, 99.999% of the population. And some of them were deeply miserable with horrific personal lives. And, and I, I was close enough to it. I mean, I would sometimes be in the, you know, I was like friends with the kids or the grandkids, right? Like I would be in the house with, and I'd say, okay, well you got, you know, you got 15 billion or whatever, and you got a lot of properties, but you're also on wife number four. Your kids hate your guts. And you know, you, and you, uh, you look like you could keel over it at any moment. You're only in like your sixties or fifties or whatever. You, you get the idea. Is extreme excellence worth the trade-off for most people? No. In short, no. I don't think so. I think that if you were to see the inner texture of most of the people that you admire's minds, you would feel far more pity than envy for them. That the price that most people pay to be absolute top peak flight achievers is it's unbearable. It, it, it's an unbelievably high cost. And there was this really interesting study where they looked at the most common qualities that elite perf- 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 achievers had, the most successful people, what they had. Three things. Superiority complex, crippling insecurity, and impulse control. Superiority complex, you believe that you can do more than other people. Crippling insecurity, it drives you to prove people wrong. And impulse control, you can focus yourself and move yourself forward. So what does it mean that the people who we admire the most, that society says are the most successful, are the ones who have the least admirable internal states? Probably means that you need to work out from first principles what you care about in life, and you need to go after that, as opposed to doing what you think other people do for success. Because the people that are the most successful, I think, on average, are more miserable than the normal person. It does seem that, uh, what was it, the Greeks had the concept, was it metron, like balance in all things? Um, yeah. Am I, am I crazy on that one? I don't know. I might have I might have just made something up. Uh, metron sounds like a sci-fi show, but I'm down for it if you say it's legit. I, I might have totally, I might have just totally. <laughs> hold it out um, of your ass. Yeah. Well, hold on. In moderation and good measure. Pan metron ariston. Is that right? There we go. Yeah. All right, yeah. Sure. So I was like, kind of. I was like in the. I was in the, the realm of. This is what having you a podcast. You just say stuff out loud as it comes into your brain, right? Uh, it was like part of the phrase, which is balance in, in all things, or you know, everything in moderation. Metron Ariston, everything in moderation. Okay, there we go. Now I'm. Very good. <laughs> it did. It did sound like I had like a 
you know, a laser cannon instead of a hand that I was like, you know, doing somersaults around and shooting correct, lizard people correct. or something. Yes, but, yes. you know, <laughs> same basic idea. Um, all right, man, Chris, I really appreciate you making the time. I know you're super busy. Just I wanted to give you this before you go. Everyone check out Modern Wisdom Podcast. Obviously, as you can tell, I've listened to a whole bunch of episodes myself. So I want to have Chris on. Um, and uh, what is, you know, we've talked about some things that are a little, little bit of a, of a bummer, you could say, mm-hmm. like the the decline and possible collapse of the human species, the destruction of masculinity, a, a bunch of things, female mental health. Like there's some, look, you spend time thinking about things that should be about challenges and ways you can fix it, which we've done a little bit of. What What is though the, the most, if you're just trying to tell people about something that you have found from your work or from your reflection on, on all things uh, recently that makes you hopeful? Pretty much everybody that's listening to this has spent time imagining just how catastrophic some scenario could occur, right? They're laid awake at night, worrying, neurotic thought loops, unable to sleep, unable to relax. And yet every single person that is sat here listening to us right now has got through whatever challenge they faced. As far as I can see, everybody is way, way, way more capable, infinitely more capable of dealing whatever life can throw at them than their mind predicts that they can be. And yet each time that we face a challenge, we believe that we're not going to be able to overcome it. You think, well, hang on a second. I have a stack of undeniable proof behind me. Every single thing that I've come up against, I'm, just, I'm here. By virtue of being here, I've got through it. So I think that resilience is proved one day at a time. And every single person that is sat here listening to this has that resilience. They have a stack of undeniable proof that they can get through whatever the world faces and throws at them. So... The reason why I tell everybody to to read Shackleton Endurance, which is my favorite book and has been for a long time. Alfred Lansing. Oh my God, dude. Phenomenal. Let me give you a suggestion before I go. Sure. The Forgotten Highlander by Alistair Urquhart. Gentleman is uh, kidnapped by the Japanese in World War II in Singapore, tortured for five years, builds the bridge over the River Kwai, gets knocked off his feet by the bomb blast from Nagasaki, survives it all, and then stays silent for 50 years because of the British government and writes a memoir calling the Japanese to account. The Forgotten Highlander, Alistair Urquhart. Amazing. Buy it as soon as we're done. Chris Williamson, man, thank oh. you so much. And please come on. The, we have a radio show that you should hang I mean, this is the podcast. The radio show is uh, about 500 stations, so it's uh, technically the biggest radio show in the country. We would love to have you on. So just let us know. Ready to go. Playing Buck. We'll, we'll get it going, man. A lot of interesting stuff. I want, I want the conservative audience to hear more of your... I know a lot of them listen to you, but you know, I want even more of them too. So thank you so much, man. Thank you for making the time. I appreciate you. Thank you, man. Born on America's darkest day of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been helping America's heroes ever since. When a first responder or military service member doesn't come home and young children are left behind, Tunnel to Towers pays the mortgage on the family home to lift the financial burden. For severely injured veterans and first responders, Tunnel to Towers builds mortgage-free smart homes, enabling severely injured heroes to move around their homes more independently. Through the Foundation's Homeless Veteran Program, Tunnel to Towers is providing housing and services to homeless veterans. More than 3,300 were helped last year alone. Because all veterans who honorably served, whether in peacetime or war, deserve our nation's gratitude. People who put their lives on the line for our country and our communities need your help now more than ever. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good and never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices of this country's heroes. Donate $11 a month at t2t.org. That's T, the number two, T, dot org.